Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate my time to my family, mountain biking, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. Academic Language Experts, or ALE for short, is an author services company dedicated to helping scholars elevate their manuscripts prior to publication and helping with grant proposals to receive research funding. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jennifer Crew, Associate Provost and Director of Columbia University Press. Jennifer earned her Master of Fine Arts degree from Columbia's School of the Arts and worked at Columbia University Press during and immediately after graduate school. After working in the commercial college textbook publishing industry, she returned to CUP as an acquisitions editor in the humanities. In that capacity, she established the press's European Perspective series, which publishes translations of leading European intellectuals. She also acquired books in the press's long-standing translations from the Asian classic series, including works such as the Lotus Sutra, the I Ching, the Analytics of Confucius, and translations of modern Asian literary works from Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and South Asian languages. As director of the press, she now can't spend too much time acquiring books, but she continues to handle the arts and traditions of the table series, which includes translations as well as original books in English on food history and on food science. Jennifer is active in the wider world of publishing and academia, having served as president of the Association of University Presses and on the executive council of the Modern Language Association. She is also the first woman director of an Ivy League university press. Jennifer, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm delighted to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Brilliant. So I, it seems um, that you, you know, you you don't have that much time, but I. I Reading between the lines, I understand that you still do enjoy engaging with texts in a deep and meaningful way. I certainly do. Um, I I do acquire some books on my own still, which is true of a lot of directors of university presses, but usually the smaller ones, the bigger ones, they don't have the time to do it. But um, but I I really like it. And one of the things I really like most about it is having one foot in the academic world 
and one foot in the business world. And that's been true since I started. So yes. <laughs> I can definitely I can definitely resonate and identify with that. I I, I the, the combination, the cross between the two is is fascinating. Um so tell me, take me back a little bit um to your to to to, to the beginnings and tell me kind of was there a specific moment or you know a, a time a period in your life where you you know, kind of fell in love with academic publishing or realized this is something that you wanted to pursue, um, not just as a you know recent graduate, but, you know, for the rest of your career? Um, well, I don't know if there was a moment. I, I think when I was um, in graduate school, I know I needed a part-time job and there happened to be one at the press. So I kind of learned by working as um, an assistant to the then humanities editor and um I realized that I didn't want to stay in graduate school forever either. I wanted to get my degree and go out. A lot of people were going on to do a PhD or whatever. And, but at that time, and it's still true, you know, it's harder, hard to get a job, hard to stay where you want to be. You have to go, have to go anywhere. And um, for doing an MFA, I was, I was doing, you know, I wanted to be a writer and, these people will go off and adjunct in all these different places for almost the rest of their lives. And I just didn't want to do that. So to me, it was when I got into it, publishing was in a way the next best thing, but I grew to think it was the best thing. So I, I'm happy about that. I don't know if there was a particular moment, but sometime as I was working part-time, I realized I could do this forever. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm going a little off script here, but you know, it's interesting when I think about, um, you know, most of the folks that I know in the academic publishing industry either were themselves academics or even if they never did a PhD are fully capable of writing books themselves. And I always find it to be an interesting sort of experience that to be on the other side and say, you know what, I actually um, enjoy or prefer or, or maybe just for financial reasons, helping others to produce their work as opposed to kind of pursuing maybe our own passions and dreams. Um, but in that in that own way, enabling others can be very fulfilling in its own right. Definitely, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit, you know, uh, if put us into the the shoes of the um, of a director of a university press. Um, you know, I, I imagine those in scholarly publishing may be more familiar. But um, you know, a typical. Um, you know, wh what might surprise us about what it is that you do um, and what and, and, and sort of the, the juggling that you take on and the different hats that you wear um, over the course of a day? Right. Well, I think um, most people in academia think that all we do is think about, the, you know, work on the books and think about the books that they're writing is actually not true. Um, I spend a lot of my day uh thinking about reacting to market, market conditions, and there are market conditions for our books, um, book selling, library purchasing trends, um, social media trends, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the nonprofit scholarly business, I would say, is a business, and a lot of scholars don't really fully get that. And it's really an a, endless challenge. It's always a challenge and the challenges differ um, as years go by. You know, they're just always something new. Um, I think most people do understand that we have, we're budget strapped, um, at least in the university press world, but even in the commercial world, often that's the case. Um, 
but for example, our most recent challenge, which now I think is a bit behind us, I mean, Amazon, for example, in the US anyway, uh, and for us, Amazon is at least 40% of our business, which is huge. I mean, they gradually took over the independent bookstores, which we don't have too many of anymore, although they're, there's a small resurgence of them. Uh, but when one customer is 40% of your business, then, you know, they do something like decide to order only three months supply as opposed to six months supply, which recently happened, it really wreaks havoc with your budget. So we're, um, you know, they make it some kind of change. Its effect is very uh, big on our bottom line. So, and then we have to explain that down the line, why this is a problem. So that's, that's a, well, just one example that I've been dealing with right it, recently, and it's not just us, it's every North American publisher had this problem because they just made a change in the way they're handling things. It's kind of balanced out now, but it's, it was a big uh, preoccupation. So that's one thing on the business end. Another thing on the more intellectual end is a kind of what I think of as the schizophrenic aspect of what we do. So we might publish a book that's very widely praised in the scholarly community. It might be the one book everybody wants to go down and buy, you know, in the exhibit area at a scholarly conference. It might win a couple of awards. You know, it feel it's a field field changing book, let's say. And, um, and everybody in the field is aware of it, but usually that is the kind of book, usually, I, not always, but usually, it's the kind of book that doesn't uh, sell enough copies to help us break even. So, because it just isn't being bought, it's, be, it's made a difference, it's had an impact on the field, but it hasn't you know, sold enough copies to make it work because people don't need to buy books uh, in the way they used to maybe 30 years ago. So so that is difficult. So we have to publish those kinds of books because those are the books that make our reputation in the world of scholarly communication. But we also have to get subsidies to help support them or publish other books that sell enough copies to make that work. But often they are money losers. So uh, that's something, that's another thing that comes to mind that people probably don't think about. That's really interesting. Um, both are both are fascinating. Both the um, Amazon, you know, and and being dependent, maybe you know, I, I imagine you probably try and drive sales to you know direct to your website, but it's it's probably easier easier said than done, right? Uh, because Amazon, we have a a sales team that sells to the independent stores. We do push, but they tend, you know, it's a smaller percentage. Amazon has just taken over, and so um, we can't really do anything about it. Our our percentage. It, which is, I think, 41% is less. Some publishers, it's 70%. So, you know, we're better off than some. But so we do our best to sell all over the place, but they end up being a, a place people go. Got it. I, I'm also curious, I don't know if you know this, but I'm curious, you know, are those Amazon folks, are they, you know, other academics or are they, you know, kind of just general intellectually curious individuals? But I don't know if there's any way to even even know that. It's hard. But I, I do, I know that a lot of academics and even libraries buy books on Amazon. Right, so, right. Makes yeah. sense. Now, now, in in terms of um, the other point that you made um, about the, you know, even even great books may not be bestsellers, um, and that there's not necessarily a correlation there. Does that push you and maybe other presses to 
have like other lines of books that kind of support um, the the more academic track, so more popular works? Yes. Well, all of our most of our lists that we publish, um, there is there are books that could appeal to general readers uh, or to readers in the academic world, but across disciplines. So they're not just focused on one set of scholars. And we try to publish those whenever we can. And we have some uh, some lists that we hope, I mean, some of our books back, a lot of our books backlist, I mean, about 70% of our sales in a given year are backlist, you know, either recent or older. We try to publish books that will be course books, will be assigned as courses, not that all students will buy the books anymore, but we sell enough, it's enough to, you know, to keep the book going and that really helps our bottom line. And then we publish some books, some professional books, for example, our business school books, some of the social work books we do, and some of those we we hope, and some of them do sell enough to uh, offset some of the losses in the other areas. Got it. Do you, I mean, you know, obviously you can't know ahead of time, but how, now that you've been doing this for 30, 40 years, do you generally have a good sense before you publish a book about how well it's going to sell or there are things, or do, are there things that still surprise you no matter how much experience um, you have? The thing is any other um, kind of company will you know, if you're in a pencil com- pencil manufacturing and selling company, everything, you know, is a pencil. You might have different varieties of pencils, but basically, you know, widgets, you're just doing the same thing. With In the book world, each thing we produce is a separate um, uh, item to sell. And that's what, you know, it's kind of labor intensive. I will say that it's very rare that we'll something will become a bestseller and we thought it would be a bestseller when we published it. Um, We do have a sense that some books will do better than others and we're surprised both ways. Um, Sometimes there's a book that we think is really just, you know, going to be of interest to a scholarly uh, community and nobody, nothing else. And then it turns out it's, you know, kind of a hit across fields and is being for a few years adopted and that kind of thing. And then sometimes we do publish a book that we think is going to sell much better than it does. And, you know, it's very hard to tell, very hard to tell. And in that Penguin Random House uh, uh, trial recently, you know, that was very clear. A lot of the heads of, you know, the commercial publishers were saying, well, you just can't tell. And there's some that turned down books that sold lots of copies. So it's, it's a guessing game. Got it. Interesting. Um, now I wonder, you, you know, you've mentioned Columbia as part of, you know, the greater world of university publishers. And it's, you know, it's clear to me that there's a lot of collaboration and, and, and good relationships and ties, but I'm also curious kind of what makes Columbia a little bit different than some of the other university presses out there. Right. Well, I think all university presses, um, American university presses, um, you know, develop strengths and have some areas they're not in. Now that I'm not talking about Oxford and Cambridge, that's why I said American university presses, because they're huge and they're pretty much in every field. Um, The oldest American university presses are over 100 years old. We were founded, for example, in 1893. And um, 
over time, we developed strength in certain fields. For example, I mean, my favorite example for us is that in the late 50s, um, we worked with the department of, which was then called Oriental Languages and Cultures, is now called East Asian Languages and Cultures, to develop, they were developing a core course for college students at Columbia on the Asian humanities or Asian civilizations. And they just, a lot of these texts were not translated yet. So, um, so we worked with them. Many people in the department did, some of them did translations. There were translators on the outside, but we worked with them to make these texts available. And a lot of them are, um, are you know, on our backlist today selling, uh, you know, to courses and that kind of thing. So that's, so we developed that going way back and now it's probably our biggest Asian civilization is probably our biggest list and we're probably one of the best I'm sure we're one of the best publishers in the field so so that's one thing and other university presses will develop other things I mean University of North Carolina Press as an example is very good in American history so um, so we developed these um, areas and we build we sort of keep in that particular list for us it, we just keep uh, building on it and, and publishing to our strengths. So so we developed lists that are good in certain areas, but we stayed out of other areas. And um, maybe because there was too much competition, other publishers had, and one example is art history. Columbia has an excellent art history department, but we just never, it was too expensive for us to get into the field. We didn't have an editor who was, you know, a specialist in that area. And there were other publishers that were doing that has strong lists in the field. So we didn't pursue that. So we have some areas that we're very good in and others that we're, uh, you know, just avoid, you know, we've avoided because we just don't have enough staff. And, you know, it's not only the editor, but you, there's a whole marketing publicity, there's a whole machine behind it that has to get into that field. So that's why University Press has developed specializations. Yeah, I think this is the one of the most um, common themes in the conversations that I have with, you know, prospective authors is um, they tend to get attracted by, you know, a particular name or, uh, you know, that they're familiar with the university. And obviously there, in many cases, there is a connection between the university and the university press. Um, but it may, they may or may not have a series that's relevant to that particular author's uh, manuscript. And I always encourage people to look a little bit less at the publisher, not because it's not important, but a little bit more at the series um, and see, you know, where can there, is there a series that, that they fit in naturally? Um, and then is that a respectable, you know, are there other, do they have good company in there in, you know, in, in that field that have published in this publisher? And then if you're continuing a dialogue, um, you know, I tell, I tell folks, it's a lot easier to continue a conversation than to start a brand new one um, as much as that may be important. Right. And the other thing to tell people is look at recent books published by the press, because sometimes we'll get um, we'll get uh, people saying, oh, I'd like you to publish my book because you published this other book, you know, like 15 years ago. That's so great. But maybe we're not, you know, and it's complimentary to my book, but maybe we're not really in that field anymore or something. You have to keep current with what's happening. Yeah. So you did, so one thing that has does seem to have kind of um, stayed steady from from many years ago is your focus on translations, which I found to be really interesting and unique, because I've had uh, chats with 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 folks at other 
um, university presses who have told me that they don't want to touch translation. So I'm curious sort of what the backstory and how you got into translations um, to begin with, and then why you think it continues to be a priority at Columbia today, and maybe some examples of some of the you know better known translations that you've worked on. Well, um, as I said earlier, you know, we started with the Department of East Asian Languages and, and that sort of started, I think, of course, I wasn't there at the time, but uh, the translations were a major um, uh, importance for that reason. And then we started other, um, other lists, of other kinds of translations. And I should back up just to say for a second that Columbia itself, the university itself, has always been very global in its approach to things. Um, there's always been strengths in sort of what they used to call area studies, and they're, you know, they have global centers all over the place. And so we, you know, we kind of reflect the strength of the university in that sense, in that, in that we want to have an internationalist. So with the Asian stuff, that's how that started. And then maybe I would say probably 30 years ago or so, our former director got interested in translations of European um, thinkers, it, mostly philosophers, historians, uh, mostly on the humanities side. And we started uh, publishing this series called European Perspectives, which you mentioned in the introduction. And these are some of our, I mean, we continue with that series to this day, and some of the um, intellectuals that we publish, um, you know, either the, the name is, is known here, uh, and then people want to know the latest book by, say, Julia Kristeva or something like that, or they, um, they're just important works that people in English-speaking countries really don't have the language skills to read on their own. So some of those um, authors that we published over the years, I mean, one is Antonio Gramsci, his prison notebooks, and we also did prison letters. I mean, um, Adorno, uh, several books by Adorno, Notes to Literature being one of them, Emmanuel Levinas, um, Hélène Sixou, various people like that. Um, our most recent book in that series is um, a book by a French historian um, called Francois Hartog, and it's called Kronos, The West Confronts Time. And it's about the notion of time in the West and how it developed um, over centuries. Um, and then, uh, so that series continues to this day, and those are translations. And then about 20 years ago, I published a book in that series called Food, A Culinary History, and it was edited by a French uh, historian and an Italian historian, um, Jean-Louis Flandrin, who's, who's now um, not alive anymore, and Massimo Montanari in Italy. And it's a kind of a null school history. I think of it as a null school history of food from the caveman to McDonald's, which is really what it is. And they commissioned essays by people around the world on various uh, topics having to do with food and the development of food and culture in Europe, mainly. And um, then that book was so successful, I realized, oh, there's a market for serious books on food in the in the US anyway. And um, so I started that series and it started with translations because people in the US were not pretty much 
and it was the beginning of the field. Now there's a real field in uh, food history and food science and that kind of thing. So, um, uh, you know, that so that series does have both English books and books in translation. And then in um, recent, more recently, about eight years ago, we started a, a list in Russian literature uh, books that had either been neglected or never translated or badly translated. So we have now, I think, about 30 books in that series. So translation has always been a part of what we do. Got it. And, and so, I, I mean, I, I guess I have you to thank for for my Levinas readings as part of my uh, bachelor's degree. So I, I now I know now <laughs> now I know who to credit. At least, well, at least you you enabled me to read in English and not in there not in French. So I guess I have, I, have, I have appreciation for that. Um, tell me about, there's one, um, one, one title here from the uh, food series that's, that sticks out at me, the botany of beer. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that one and some of the work that you've done in that area. Yes. Well, you know, the food series started as history, but branched into, um, more, you know, scientific, uh, works. A lot of scientists, particularly in Europe are, are interested in, um, the science, you know, the, the science of flavor, or for example, we did a book that, um, a French book that was uh, by Hervé Thys, a, a chemist uh, called Molecular Gastronomy. I think it sold, you know, close to 100,000 copies, which we did not think it would in the beginning. Um, but this one, The Botany of Beer, um, is by a, um, I think he's a by, I want to say he's a biochemist, anyway, a botanist. He's a botanist. There's somebody else who's a biochemist. He's a botanist, Giuseppe Caruso, an Italian uh, botanist. And I saw, that this was again, I think either at the Frankfurt Book Fair or the London Book Fair, I saw this Italian book published by Slow Food Editore. And we did the, in this series of translation of Carlo Petrini's Slow Food years before, and he started a whole publishing thing. And this book is a big sort of encyclopedia of all the the plants that are used around the world in the brewing of beer. And this botanist happens to be a wonderful illustrator, too. So he draws, there's a picture of the leaf, the main leaf of every single one of these plants. So beer, you know, home brewers, as well as professional people are very interested in this book. So that's the kind of book that wouldn't have been done. Nobody had done that here. So, uh, or in English anyway, so that would, that's a good one. Got it. And, and tell me, you know, um, when you have something that lands on your desk, that's, or, or if you go to a book fair and you notice something, um, you know, what are the, what are kind of the considerations for publishing a translation versus publishing an original work? Um, you know, does it matter? Like what, what, what factors are you taking into account and kind of what, sort of, uh, you know, I know it's hard to ask what you look for, because I think you're probably looking for something that's unique and, and different. You might not know it till you see it. Um, but what kind right. of things are you, you're keeping your eyes out for? Well, um, to answer the first part of the, your question first, I think, uh, we would not translate a book that we didn't think had a broader audience than a sort of uh, what we would call a scholarly monograph, in other words, a narrowly focused book, mainly for specialists in the field, because usually specialists in the field would 
know how to read the, that book in the original language anyway, but also it couldn't support the extra cost of translation. So um, we, and sometimes we kind of agonize about it, like can we sell enough copies of this or will it work? And we also look for subsidies whenever possible. And many times the governments will have a program. Uh, sometimes the author will have, be able to tap into um, some funding and we look for funding here to help cover the cost of translation. It's rare that we would do a book and translate it and not have some kind of money to help cover that. Um, but, and what we, but what we look for in a, a book that might be translated is really, is the author known here? That's the first thing, or I say here, <laughs> you're in Israel and I'm here. But in the English language world, is the author known? And is the author known by, you know, people, do you hear that name pop up? Um, and the other thing is, even if the author isn't known, is the subject uh, so interesting and so approach so different that it wouldn't be done in English? And um, I would say, you know, the botany of beer, there's an example there that, you know, the author wasn't particularly known, but what he did with that subject and what he did with the book is um, something that nobody done here. So that would be a reason to do that. Um, the hard talk book I mentioned earlier, Kronos, that, that's a method, you know, it, it's sort of historiography and nobody that I'm aware of is doing that, at least in American universities, the way he is. So that would be another reason. Is somebody doing something that just isn't being done in English? And so that would be another reason to translate. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's more work for the editor and the editor's assistant because we have to scrounge for, for um, funding. But uh, it can be quite rewarding and you feel as though you've you know, you've really made a contribution. Um, and we get, you know, it isn't just the book fairs, we get suggestions by authors, by scholars at Columbia. In fact, I just had one this morning by somebody about a very important Japanese book that had never been done and we, we should consider, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I'm always, it's so, an interesting point. I'm always curious about to what extent, you know, your, or what percentage of the books that you end up publishing are books that you pursue, you heard about and you pursued or you know, or you pursued the author because you were intrigued by their work versus how many, you know, landed on your desk that you never would have heard of otherwise and just kind of impressed you um, and, and, mm -hmm. and and you think twice about it. Well, are you, you're talking about any book now, not just. Yeah, yeah, yeah not, not specifically in this field, just, yeah, in general. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the editors will do reading in the field, go to conferences, talk a lot to people and hear about things that in those ways. Um, some things do come right in what we say over the transom. We still use that term, even though it's just coming in on email usually. Um, and, you know, a lot of them aren't right. As you said earlier, you know, sometimes the scholar hasn't done his homework and it's not at all. If you just look at the website, you know, it's not going to fit in our list. Fit is the most important thing. 
but um, some once in a while it, it works. So it, I don't know what percentage, but I think the bigger percentage is the ones people go out and pursue and say, oh, you know, I heard you're working on such and such. Let me consider it. And then it might be five or 10 years later and they finally finish and send it to you. So. And I think that also reinforces the importance of relationships in this, in this context. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it, on the one hand, you need to have something to say in order to go out there and say it. On the other hand, you could have something brilliant, but if you don't ever um, let people know about it, then, then it also doesn't happen. So, uh, you know, these, these, you know, I, I think one of the mistakes that I see authors making maybe more than any, anything else is, is thinking that they should wait until they have their perfect, you know, finished, polished product in order to start the conversation with an acquisitions editor and and looking at it as like a, you know, kind of a transactional relationship. Whereas in, in essence, uh, at least the acquisitions editors that I know and I've come across, um, they they love the engagement. They love the conversations. They love the, you know, um, talking through and explaining the ideas and actually being part of the process. Obviously, their time is limited. They can't necessarily shoot the breeze whenever, whenever the author wants. But to help them be kind of um, that, 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 you know, guiding, um, you know, uh, uh, light or, or, you know, that the, the advisor in that sense um, for what does well, not just as an academic idea, but as a book that needs to sell copies um, seems to me maybe something that, that, that authors um, should be aware of. I agree. I, I've, they can get a lot of valuable and it means that they're not wasting their time going down one path when they could, you know, take this advice. It's almost like another peer review, only not by a, um, a specialist in the field, by a potential reader, or, you know, who's thinking about potential readers and potential reviewers. So I, I do think that's very important. Yeah, I think I, someone, someone in the industry once told me that, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but, you know, that if you have an acquisitions editor who believes in your project, um, that can go a very far way. Um, and it doesn't mean, you know, the review, they'll still take the review very seriously. And, and, and you know, if the reviewers say that it's not worth the, the ink it's written on, then obviously it won't be accepted. But but it, when there are those cases where maybe one reviewer is more positive and the other reviewers, you know, you know uh, maybe skeptical, having that acquisitions editor that really, you know, is in your corner and believes in your project can go a long way in order to, you know, making sure the project is successful. Yeah. Yeah, the editor really is your advocate in the whole process. If the, if there's a strong relationship and the editor believes in the book, then the editor will argue, believe me, I hear it all the time, you know, this is really important. This person who's the negative reviewer has problems because of X, Y, and Z, and then, you know, they get a good response. And, and they do that not only in-house, but to our faculty publication committee. So, you know, because they we don't publish a book unless they've approved it. So, so tell me so. a bit about that. How does the process actually work? Well, uh, at, and each process slightly different. So I, I don't know if this is true everywhere, probably not. But we, um, if an editor sees something in an early stage, a proposal, say, or even gets a manuscript in and is quite interested, they'll discuss it at a... Um, a meeting in-house that includes editors and also some marketing and salespeople and just say, discuss it even before peer review um, and say, you know, is this, you know, I think this would really fit my list in this way and that way. And what do you think? And so there'd be a discussion about it. And, you know, basically we would decide, yes, go ahead and peer review or no, it just doesn't look like it's, it looks 
they're problematic from this point of view and that point of view. So there, there's, there's that first hurdle. And then assuming we say, okay, see what the peer reviews say, then um, the editor will get peer reviews. And then at that point, maybe decide, I'm not going to pursue this anymore, or say, bring it back to the uh, our uh, committee, and at that point, with the reviews and all the stuff, then we talk about whether and the and the P and L, you know, what the financial situation, and then we talk about it. And assuming it's approved at that, then it goes to our faculty board, and they they sort of give the final okay. And often it's you know, I'd say maybe half and half. Some of them are proposals or partial proposals with a chapter or two, and some of them are full manuscripts. Some of them have to go back. The ones that are proposals and partial for sure have to go back to the committees when it's written with peer reviews too, to make sure it's okay. So I want to talk for a minute about, or ask you about the business of, 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 um, of, of translating or of, you know, publishing in general. And, you know, cause I think that where authors maybe get stuck sometimes is, you know, they want to write about the field that's their area of research. And oftentimes that area is quite niche and, 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 and unique um, and maybe doesn't have thousands or, you know, tens of thousands of, of people interested. So what do you recommend or to scholars? Sorry? Or hundreds. Or hundreds, right. You're right. You might be able to count them, uh, you know, and, and, and recite them offhand. Um, it definitely needs to be larger than your average, you know, academic conference that, you know, just includes the, the, the 15 folks in your field. So how do you recommend to scholars to approach the idea of a book as, I guess, in contrast to, let's say, an article um, and, you know, making that decision about, you know, whether something should be a book or not. And then if it if someone does want to have a book, how to make sure it has a broad enough appeal that it actually has the potential to sell, because that is an important consideration in the decision-making process. Yeah. Well, I, probably I'm a little bit too far removed from this, but I'll, I'll tell you what I think and what I used to do. Part of it is um, if the person can, the first part of it is, you know, is it, you know, what's the audience? And the, if the person can describe it in a way that, it's describing their argument in their book in a way that he or she is speaking to, you know, uh, a sibling or somebody not in academia, but who would then understand what they're saying. I mean, a lot of people can't do that. And you can kind of see from proposals that um, some people are so in the weeds of their field with so much of the um, the details and the academic jargon, you can tell that they're not going to be able to do that. Now, it might be a brilliant book, um, but then if we if we still want to pursue it, then we realize it's a scholarly monograph. It's not going to go any further. If we think it has the potential to go further, then we, we do that test of the, you know, the relative or something. How can you explain the elevator pitch, essentially? Because what happens is, we have to then tell our different committees what this book is about. And then um, our, down the line, the publicity person has to sell it to the book review media and the salespeople have to sell it to the bookstore. And you have to really be able to say it in a sentence or two, what this book is. So, um, so that's one thing. Um, 
And as the question about the article, now our science editor, I know, comes into this uh, area a lot because she might read an article on some interesting topic and then write to the author and say, I think there's a book in this. Um, so we do that in that regard. We've already decided, yes, there's probably enough uh, material, enough interesting stuff to be a book, not an article. But that's a, a conversation we have around our table. Like, could this just be an article? We ask that question. And sometimes the answer is yes. And so we don't want to pursue the book. Um, would somebody actually pay money to buy a book and read it on this topic? Or would they rather just read an article? So I, I don't know. I can't really tell you. I'm not coming up with examples right now, but that's definitely that's part of our conversation. Got it. Now I want to take you back to the um, take you back to the the book fairs uh, for a minute, and um, I know they're exciting. I was at Frankfurt this year, and it's an exciting you know a, a lot going on, and there's a lot of uh, specifically in the context of licensing deals. So maybe you can take us behind the scenes a little bit and tell us. Okay, let's say there's a book that you're interested in in another language. You want to um, acquire the license to translate and publish it in English, or vice versa. Um, you know. Columbia has a book that's published in English that you then want to sell those rights uh, for translation into other languages. How does that how does that happen? Okay, so well, for selling rights to our books, you know, we have a rights director who also goes to those fairs because they are rights fairs in Frankfurt and London, and um, she goes through our the list that's coming up, and she pulls out books that she thinks have good translation potential. And it might be different for from country to country. For example, we sell a lot of our business books to Chinese publishers, mainly simplified language, simplified character Chinese, and also to complex characters to Taiwan. We, we also sell them to Korea and Japan. So the business books often go in to those countries. Um, we have others that go into other Turkish is another strong language for translation for us. Um, so she basically knows a lot of publishers, similar publishers around the world. And she talks with them at Frankfurt. She shows them the description we have of the book, the rights sheet, the jacket, if we have jacket and, and they go back, they think about it. And then they might write her and ask, oh, could you send me the manuscript? So um, it's the same thing uh, the other way around. So I will go and our editorial director will go around to different publishers that we've worked with for years and sometimes new publishers and see what they have coming on their lists and um, hear them pitch the books, take back the right sheets, think about it, and then ask, or just right at the moment, ask, please send me that, you know, and usually they send a PDF. It's much faster than it used to be. So then you take a look and if you know, like French, I sort of know, so I can skim through and see if I want it. But if I'm not so sure, then I will ask. Sometimes I'll just ask a scholar to, that I trust, that I know forever, would, does this seem good? You know, just a quick. And then if so, then I would take it to this committee and we would decide to review or not and then um, get peer reviews of the book in the original language and um, then decide whether to go. And I have one right now for our food series in French that I wanna do, and I think I've, I've made an offer already, it was approved by the committees, but I, th we wanna rearrange it, do the their end, short entries, and I, 
rearrange it a little bit, have them write a different introduction. So they've agreed, the authors have agreed to do that. I'd go through the rights director of the, of the French publisher. Usually it's just what you have is what you get, you know, but sometimes you can work with the person and do, uh, tailor the book a little bit more for the English language market. But um, so that's what we do. That's how we find them. Or as I say, you know, the scholar wrote me about a Japanese book just the other day. Um, you, you then think about it. You talk to other people in the field. Yes, is this an important book? Then you talk about it with our committee. And then you might ask for, the, for a PDF of the book and then get that peer reviewed. That, that's sort of how that works. Um, did you also mean our, how we work with rights people and negotiate contracts? Yeah, I'm also curious about that. You can, if you want to say a word or two about that. Um, I would say if we want to do the book, it's been approved by the committees and um, we feel there's a market and we, you know, all those things, those answer, questions are answered. Then we, I would go or the editor would go to the rights director who'd sent you the book to begin with and say, yes, I'd like to make an offer for this. And you make an offer and it usually is involved in advance usually a smallish advance for us and then a royalty structure that's common for their country. And, um, and then, you know, there might be another, sometimes they say, oh, well, we, we get an email. Oh, we, they, I sent this to three people and now we're getting two offers in. Do you want to make an offer? So sometimes it's competitive. Um, sometimes it isn't. It really just depends. Got it. Interesting. And, and, um, well, I, you know, I, 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 there's a lot. There's a lot of really interesting things to unpack here, but I want to. I, I know we're coming to the end of our time, so I wanted to circle back around because the main theme of of this chat was really about translations, and 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 I want you know I'm curious to hear from you about maybe some different experiences you've had with different translators and how you kind of um, identify um, you know really folks who really do a great job. And I'm also wondering whether you think um, you know have you seen improvement in in the automated um, services and automated translations that you've come across in recent years. And do you, do you see that as a, um, as a threat to the, to the human translator, um, you know, moving forward? Okay. Well, first I'll, I'll answer that last, but the first thing is choosing a translator. We have translators we've worked with a lot. And so I know if a book is really mainly a general interest book and needs a really sort of poetic flow to it, I'll go to this person. If it per, if the book needs a specialist in film studies or whatever it is, I'll go to that person. You know that kind of thing. So we work with people over over the years, and we've um, we know that their strengths and you know, uh, and one of them I'm working with right now for on a French translation. She's really in touch with the author a lot, asking questions, making sure that this is the right translation, all that. So that's great. Um, for the, and also, by the way, I forgot to say earlier, we do peer review these translations when they're in. I mean, unless the author is absolutely bilingual, you know, we will, we will peer review just to make sure a spot check. Um, and, but as for the automated translations, my feeling is that um, never will there be a book, you know, that we will do that, you know, publish a book that's been, uh, artificial intelligently translated. I think that um, it's just not possible with our kinds of books. I think it is very useful. I have used it myself 
when I get an email from somebody in another language that I really don't know, and then I can just quickly get the gist. I mean, sometimes there are mistakes, <laughs> but I can get the gist of what they're saying. And I know, I, for example, just today, I had an email from an author in Japan who had done that the other way around, like sent me both the Japanese text and the English Google Translate or whatever it was. Um, so I think for little factual things and little email uh, exchanges, it's really okay. But when there's something where you really need someone who's either expert in the field or both expert in the field and an expert in English and translating into his or her native language of English, it's just you. I don't. I don't see. I mean, I think it's improved a lot, but I just don't see there's going to be a major, you know. Yeah, the way I like to say it is when you, you know, sometimes what's between the lines is as important as the lines themselves. And and, and the nuance and context is, you know, requires a certain amount of human human creativity and ingenuity and sometimes even on the spot thinking. So um, which is something that as of as of yet, the um, the 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 robots have not figured out. But who knows? You know, we're we're still young and (laughs) and technology is progressing at quite a quite a rapid pace. So anyways, um, Jennifer, this has been really insightful and engaging, and I thank you for taking your time and sharing your ideas. Um, I know I learned a lot in the last 50 minutes, and I'm sure that our audience has as well. Um, if there are folks who either want to, uh, you know, I don't know if you have a LinkedIn presence, if people can follow you there, or if, um, yeah, okay, great. So uh, that's Jennifer Crew, and and um, and I guess if they want more information about, you know, publishing with Columbia to go on to the website. Yeah, going to the website, the editors all have their own little bios and what they're interested in. And if you have a question, you can ask me too. That's fine. Brilliant. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.